0: Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we can gather here together and open your word and that your spirit is alive and active within us and within your word to teach us and to mold us and shape us. Father, I pray that we would be drawn to you this morning, to your power, to your glory, um, to your awesomeness, Lord, and that we would stand in awe and be amazed by you. Father, and that your word would not return void, but uh, our hearts would be motivated and challenged and changed this morning. Uh, again, we thank you for all that you are and all that you've done for us. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. So I need a little background for you. Uh, we got it a little out of order, unfortunately. Um, like uh, Katie said last week, Zechariah and Haggai are contemporaries. They spoke at the same time. Haggai did start his message a little before Zechariah, so I should have gone before Casey, but still, uh, the message remains the same. So so you know, Haggai started a little before Zechariah. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the prophets at this time. If you want to see the history, if you look at Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, those are the historical books that cover the same period of time that the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi do. Um, And then Daniel... Uh, it's kind of a prequel, if you will, to the events that follow. So I would challenge you um, this afternoon or later this week, uh, sit down and read the first chapter, first six chapters of Ezra, um, and you'll get a really good understanding and grasp of what happened prior to Haggai coming on the scene. Um, and we'll touch on that a little bit this morning. So the nation of Israel had been taken captive. they have been in captivity for 70 years. Babylon came in conquered, took Judah into captivity. And now at the start of Haggai we find the nation of Israel is under new control. Babylon has fallen. Persia is now the big man on campus. He's taken control. Persia is the empire and are now controlling uh, the Israelites. And Sirius the Great is the first great king of Persia. And he decides that the gods have blessed him with all these nations and he is the ruler of the world in his, in his own eyes. And so he thinks, you know, I need to um, return the blessing to the gods of the world. And so he begins decrees uh, over the nations that he has control over, allowing them to rebuild their temples or begin their worship again. So that's what he does in 538 B.C. Sirius gives a decree that the children of Israel can return back to their land, and they can rebuild the temple. So Ezra takes back a group of the, uh, the nation of Israel. And sadly, it's only a remnant. Uh, sadly, a large number of the Israelite people d- decided to stay uh, in Babylon and rather than to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. But Ezra takes a remnant. They go back to rebuild the temple. It's about a four-month journey. Um, it was primarily made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So they get back. You can imagine the excitement of the journey. They get back and they begin to rebuild the temple. So they rebuild the altar so that they can make sacrifices. They begin to lay the foundation of the temple and they have a celebration. And they immediately begin to see some opposition. So what happens is the Samaritans come along. Does anybody know who the Samaritans are? Can you give me a little background about the Samaritans? They lived in Samaria. This is true. Any other useful information about the Samaritans? They were a half people. They were a mixed breed, if you will. They uh, were the Israelites who had married with other nations. And so the Israelites didn't like them because they weren't fully Israelite. And no one else liked them because they were part Israelite. So they were kind of stuck in the middle and nobody liked them. Um, and so the Samaritans come along and they say, hey, you're rebuilding the temple, can we help? Now, the problem here is that the Samaritans, just like they were, their religion was, that, was the same kind of mixed-breed religion. They had part of the Israelite religion that they had taken with them, and then parts of all the other religions of the nations they had intermarried with. And so their god, their religion was just a perverse, screwed-up system. So, rightfully so, the Israelites say No. You have no part in this. Uh, You do not worship the one true God that we do, and we don't want your hands on this work. So the Samaritans are offended by this, and so instead of their uh, attitude to help, they now turn to be their adversaries, their enemies, and put their hand against them. So they try many ways to stop their progress and hinder them. Um, The Israelites see this... uh, confrontation and uh, oppression, and it begins to dwindle their spirits. Uh, the, uh, the Samaritans write a letter to the new king of Persia, um, the success, successor of, of Sirius, and they say, hey, the Israelites are rebuilding the wall, they plan on um, not paying you tribute anymore, and once they get done, you know, turning their backs on you, which wasn't true. Um, but the king issued a decree that they were to stop uh, stop rebuilding the wall, which they weren't building. And so, so the Israelites stopped. They stopped rebuilding the temple. They got the foundation laid, and that's about as far as they got. They met opposition, and they gave up. So that was in 538 B.C. If you turn to Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, that's where we are now. It says in verse 1, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shittil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So unlike a lot of books in the Old Testament, or even throughout the Bible where we don't know the exact dates of when they were written, we can actually pinpoint the date here within like three days. So it's somewhere between August 29th and September 1st in the year 520 B.C. that Haggai comes and gives his first message to the children of Israel. So if Sirius made the decree in 538 B.C. and it's now 520 B.C., how long had the people been back? Eighteen years. They had returned to the land with the intention of building the temple. It's been eighteen years and there's nothing but a foundation. So what happened? We meet two people. First, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. His name means Sown in Babylon. It's a heathen name. And he was of the line of Christ. And he was appointed by Sirius to be the governor of Judah. So he's kind of like their fake king. He has authority to rule over Judah, but... But uh, Sirius was the king. So Zerubbabel is the governor. Then we meet Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak. Jehoshadak was the high priest uh, at the time of the Babylonian invasion. And so Joshua is the religious ruler of the people. So we see Haggai speaking to the governor, Zerubbabel, and to the high priest, Joshua, and to the people of Israel. So verse 2. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Pay attention to that phrase because you're going to hear it like 15 times this morning. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. I love that intro there. These people. How often in the Old Testament do we see God refer to the nation of Israel as His people? But He starts out with, These people, and it immediately brings to mind the um, idea of parents. I'm sure many of you have been in this situation or heard this before or experienced this with your own parents. But perhaps the father comes home from work, long day at work, walks in the door to greet his wife, and his wife begins with, Do you know what your son did today? It's not her son at this moment, it's his son. Do you know what you know what I'm talking about? And I feel like that's what the Lord's saying right here. These people, you know what these people are saying? They're not my people right now. He said they're saying that it, the time has not yet come to rebuild the temple. The decree was given by, by Sirius. The people had returned, they'd laid the foundation, and they gave up. And they made an excuse. They said, it just must not be the right time to build the temple. And what were their reasons? We looked at one. They had begun to receive oppression from their enemies around. And so that dwindled their spirits. And they said, you know, maybe if if God wanted to build us the temple, we wouldn't be seeing this oppression. And then the edict from the king was stopped. Well, you know, if the king says stop, then we must have to stop. must not be the Lord's will. But what's funny about that is, did the king tell them to stop building the temple? No, he only said that they should stop building the wall, which they weren't doing. And if you know the history of Persian law, you know that when Sirius made his decree that the people were to return and rebuild the temple that there couldn't be any other decrees to go against that decree. So even when the king made the new decree for them to stop, it was pointless, it was worthless. The first decree outweighed it. And so the people still had the right to rebuild the temple because of the decree from Sirius. So we see that they made excuses, but that wasn't the real heart of the matter. So if we go on, When we look at verse 3, we're going to find out what the real heart of the matter is with the people. Verse 3. It says, When the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you, are, you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your way, go up to the hills, and bring wood, and build the house, and I may take, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. And when, uh, why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and the grain and the new wine and the oil and, on the, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all your labors. So what had distracted the people? Any idea? Comfort, their own needs. It says, and he, that verse four is such a like a stab right in the face. You know, they said it's not time, and God says it's not time. It's not time to build my house, but it's time to build your houses. Is that what time it is? Time for you to build your paneled houses. And when it says paneled houses here, we're not referring to, they just didn't take up stones and build these, ni- these little homes just so they would have cover. Paneled houses gives the idea that the insides were, you know, wainscoting, trim, stained, beautiful. They had spent some time making some nice homes for themselves. And the Lord says, what are you people talking about? It's not time to build my house. But you're more than willing to spend time and money on effort in making your houses beautiful and comfortable. Their comfort themselves had gotten in the way of building the temple. What was the temple to the Israelites? What was the temple? Someone tell me. What was so important about the temple? presence of God in the Old Testament dwelled in the temple. In the holies of holies, the actual glory and presence of God dwelled there. So in effect, the people are saying to God, our comfort is more important than your presence. We desire this world, our luxuries, our homes, our comfort, more than we desire your presence among us so what was happening to the people we see from the Lord that life wasn't going so great was it as much as they were pouring everything they had into themselves life wasn't splendid life was perpetually frustrating they met discontent on every side didn't they he says, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. He says, You're seeking prosperity, but you're not finding it. Because you're not seeking me. Why do you strive for what is temporary? a message that hits right at us, isn't it? Dr. Leary Crabb, one of my favorite speakers, said this in one of his messages. He said, Put second things first and lose both first and second things. But put first things first and second things are graciously thrown in say that one more time for you. Put second things first and lose both first and second things. But put first things first and second things are graciously thrown in. And that's what's happening to the people right now, isn't it? They're putting second things first. They're putting their own comfort first. But it's not working. Not only are they empty, unfulfilled, they still don't have the presence of God among them. But God says, if you put me first, if you seek my glory first, I promise that you will find fulfillment. It may not be in what you think fulfillment is, but I promise that you will find it. And so that's what he's telling the children of Israel. So what's he telling them to do? Verse 8, very simple. He says, Go up to the hills, Bring wood and build the house. It's pretty simple. Get off your butt, go get the wood, and start building the house. Why? That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord of hosts. So that my glory may once again be among you. So what do the people do? Verse 12. Wonderful response. They listened. So chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. They obeyed him. They began. They said, all right, we're going to go up to the hill, we're going to get the wood, and we're going to start to build. So the people obeyed. In verse 13, the word of the Lord comes to Haggai again. It says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Can you imagine? The people obeyed. They begin again. Haggai comes back. I got another word from the Lord. We started. We obeyed. What is it, Haggai? The message from the Lord. I am with you, declares the Lord. Can you imagine? The just the pump of excitement they gave the people. God says, rebuild my temple. The people say, you're right. We've been serving ourselves. Let's rebuild the temple. They begin and God says, go tell them, I'm with you, declares the Lord. And what to do, verse 14, says, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak." the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So the people began. The Lord said, I'm with you. And his spirit stirred them up. They were excited. They were zealous. zealous and they began to rebuild the temple. And that date is somewhere around September 20th. So they began. the message came September 1st. They began September 20th to rebuild the temple. And they were excited. They were zealous. And then we get to chapter 2. Chapter 2. It says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So we got another day. September 1st, the message came. September 20th, they started. And today, it is October 17th. So, how much time later are we? About three weeks? They've been working for about three weeks. It's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and the people have become discouraged already. Why? Let's look at verse 2 and 3. The Lord asked them, question. He says, Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it nothing in your eyes? So what's he talking about? What's he asking them? He's asking them this. This is the situation. Some of the people who returned from captivity, although young at the time, would have remembered Solomon's temple. Can someone tell me anything about Solomon's temple? It was pretty fancy. And that was an understatement. This place was incredible. Israel was probably at, you know, one of the heights of its nation at that time. And this temple was incredible. Solomon's, Set to build the temple of God and it was incredible. It's estimated that in today's worth there were somewhere around four billion dollars worth of gold in the temple. Just gold. Most of the temple was overlaid in gold. This place was incredible. I guarantee that there's nothing on earth right now that compares to what this place looked like. It was ornate, beautiful, just perfect. And so the issue is this. Some of the people, although young at the time and old now, would have remembered Solomon's temple. They would have remembered how incredible the temple of God was. And as they began working on this temple, they began to get discouraged. They began to think back to Solomon's temple and then look at what was in front of them, and they thought, man, this thing is nothing like Solomon's temple. It's nothing like the temple that we had before the Babylonians destroyed. I mean, this thing looks like a barn compared to the temple. What's the point? But this wasn't the first time this happened. If you look back to Ezra chapter 3, it happened before, 18 years ago when they began to build the temple. The same thing happened. Ezra 3 verse 10 it says and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the levites and the sons of Esheth with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of king, of David king of Israel and they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures toward Israel and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the Father's house, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So we see that the young people are excited. We're rebuilding the temple. But the old people, they say, man, this is nothing like Solomon's temple. What's the point? You know, maybe they thought, it's better if we just have a beautiful memory than if we press on and continue with this crummy imitation. And it's easy to apply that to our own lives as well, isn't it? Often do we compare ourselves, our work, our ministry, our church, our family, our lives to others. Man, you know, look over there and look at the work that's happening. Look how the Lord is blessing and doing amazing things. You know, what's the point? You know, I've only only seen just a little response. Might as well give up. But what does the Lord say to the people? Verse 4. He says, yet now be strong. Don't give up. Be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, My spirit remains in your midst. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I'll shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than its former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. He says, be strong, press on. And he gives them two reasons. First, he says, work, for I am with you. I am with you. I have set to do this. This is my work. How dare you call it trivial? I have set to work among you to rebuild the temple. How dare you call this trivial? I am in this. In verse 5 he says, I am God and I am with you. And he recalls them back. He says, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is among your midst. He recalls them back to Egypt. I am the same God, Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. The same God that split the Red Sea. The same God that guided you by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. I am that God. And I am among your midst. Be strong. Press on. Because you build more than you see. Right now you see a small and insignificant temple but you're looking only with your human eyes and it goes beyond that in 1st Chronicles 28 20 it's interesting David is speaking to his son Solomon instructing him of how to, to build the temple before the temple and David shares with Solomon a very similar message he says, it says then David said to Solomon his son be strong and courageous and do it Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. In verses 6 through 9, he gives a second reason. He says, the glory of this temple goes beyond what you can see right now. And I think we see this promise fulfilled in in a number of different ways, a progression of fulfillments. We see that often with prophecies. And I think we see it in a number of different ways. Firstly, is that later, Herod did complete this temple. He did finish it with gold, and it it did in some way compare to Solomon's temple. It was yet again a beautiful temple. And I think that's a a partial fulfillment of what we see. But then in 70 A.D., this temple is destroyed. Completely destroyed. And so, I think we see a further fulfillment of this promise in Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, like we said, the, the temple was where we met God. It's where the nation of Israel came and they met God. It's where His presence resided. And in the New Testament, Christ, is where we meet God. Christ came down, the presence of God, the fullness of God, and dwelled a human body and came to earth. And that's where we meet Christ. And in the New Testament Christ refers to himself as the temple, doesn't he? In John chapter two nineteen, Christ says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up again. And John goes on to say, and Christ wasn't talking about an earthly physical temple, He was talking about Himself. And I think that there is yet to be a fulfillment of this promise. In Revelation 21 22, John sees a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And this is what he says. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see, even when Solomon's temple was built in all of its beauty and gold, it wasn't about the building, was it? That wasn't what made the temple extraordinary. It's because the presence of God dwelled there. The Shekinah glory, the holies of holies, was indwelled by the presence of God. And so Christ is God. And we see the glory of Christ fulfilled in that promise. And when one day we stand in glory with our God and our Savior, we will be surrounded with the presence of God and His glory. And it will compare, the temple will compare nothing to it. So God says, I am with you. I have set to do this. Be strong. For this goes beyond what you see. This is not about the building. It's about my glory. So we go to the last section. We're out of time, so I'm going to try to go through this quickly. The last section says, On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. So we get one more message from God. And this is somewhere around December 20th. So we're about two and a half months later. And the third message comes. And he asks two questions. I'm not going to read it, but he asked two questions of the priests. And the first question it goes like this. He says, if something holy, he talks about holy meat, But he says, if something holy touches something that's not holy, does it make it holy? What's the answer? No. So then he says, if something is unclean, and it touches something that's clean or or holy, does it make it unclean or unholy? And what's the answer? Yes. Yes. And Charles Swindoll says, if you pick up a lump of mud with white gloves, the mud never becomes glovey. that's the point, isn't it? With the gloves, they become muddy. And that's that's the point that God is trying to get across. And so what does he say to the people? Verse 14, it says, Then Haggai answered and says, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So apparently what is happening is some of the people thought because they were working on the temple, that would make them holy. But it doesn't work that way, God says. In fact, it works the opposite way. Because of your own holy hands, you contaminate it. goes on and he says remember before I think I think he's stopping them before they make a mistake and he's saying stop wait don't make this mistake remember before verse 15 he says now then consider from this day onward before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord how did you fare before you started this how was life going when one came to a heap of 20 measures there were but 10 when one came to draw When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. I think he's saying, remember, remember what it was like before you turned to me. Don't make this mistake again. You see, before they began building the temple, they had built the altar, right? Right? That was the first thing they did. They rebuilt the altar so that they could sacrifice. Even though they had not finished rebuilding the temple, they were still recognizing the sacrificial system. The people were still coming, offering sacrifices. The priests were making sacrifices all the time that the temple lay in ruins. And so, I think the Lord is saying to them, remember and don't fall into this trap again because It's not about your service. It's about your heart. I don't want your empty sacrifices, just like before, when you were just going through the motions, you were coming, you were giving your sacrifices, and you were going back to your nice, beautiful, paneled homes and serving yourselves. Don't miss it. Just because now you're rebuilding the temple that doesn't make you holy. I want your heart. You obeyed me. You turned to me. Don't forget that. Keep obeying me. Keep obeying turning to me. And we can fall into that trap too, can't we? The third lesson I think we see. Because just because we come to church here on Sunday, that doesn't make us holy, does it? It's not something on our checklist that we that we mark off. Went to church, holy on Sunday, I'm good. Just because those folks down in the hall are, are helping out with Sunday school, that doesn't make them holy. Leaders, just because we're on the leadership team at the church, that doesn't make us holy. Throughout the Old Testament, a number of times, Christ says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says, I don't just want your empty sacrifices. I want you. I want your heart. And I want you to obey me and love me. And that's the whole point here, isn't it? The people had forsaken the presence of God. Through the temple, And they began to rebuild it. And Christ says, don't miss the point. This temple isn't about doing something for me. This temple is about my presence returning to your people. It is about my glory among you. And don't forget that focus. In 1 Samuel, we know from 1 Samuel 6, 7, it says that God sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I'm seeking a genuine heart, says the Lord to the people. And so, what does he say next? Verse 18. He says, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed. The vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, have they yielded nothing? But from this day on, I will bless you. Again, I think he's trying to catch the people before they fall again. He says, if you have obeyed, and I have promised to bless you. They started in September, right? It's December. How long has it been? About three months. He says, it's only been three months, guys. For 18 years you turned from Me and served yourselves. It's only been three months. He says, Is the seed yet in the barn? I think the question is, Is the blessing here yet? Are the fig trees, the pomegranate, are they yielding fruit yet? No, not yet. It's only been three months. And it's December. It's winter. But spring is coming. My blessing is coming. Press on. Seek Me. And I promise you will find fulfillment. And I think that promise is the same promise that He gives us today. How did the people fare when they lived for themselves? When these people had living a frustrated, discontent life. It says they toiled and they got, at maybe best, half back. It says they were putting money in bags with holes. They were saving up for something that didn't last, that didn't matter. They were going through the motions and they were living for themselves. And it had produced nothing and emptiness. I don't want us not to be those people. I don't want us to be people that go through the motions and then pour all that we have back into ourselves. And to find no fulfillment. Because I know that. I've experienced that. I experience it now. So often I serve myself. I, I pour all that I have back into myself. Into what I have. Into this earth. Into what's temporary. Seeking joy and fulfillment. And I don't find it. And I know that you guys know what I'm talking about. But Christ. And Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John ten ten he says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. I pray this morning that we will be a people that seeks the lord with all of our hearts with all of our souls and with all of our minds and that with all that we have all of our time our money our resources we pour that not back into ourselves but into his kingdom into his glory into his glory why because we love and we long for his presence and his glory i want to be those people And I say this to you folks just as much as I say it to me this morning. Because I need you. I need you to be with me, alongside me. Because just like these Israelites, how quickly and foolishly they become discouraged, I'm that same person. Haggai has challenged me this week. But Monday, I'm going to be discouraged. And I'm going to forget this message. And we can't do that. We have to be a people that come along one another and when I'm down, you pull me up. And KT, when you're down, I come alongside you and I pull you up. And I say, it's not about me, KT. It's not about you. It's about His glory and it's about His kingdom. And I want this body, this church, so filled with the Spirit of God, with His Holy Spirit, that the Lord does tremendous, amazing things through us. And that doesn't mean they're they're going to be huge, big things. They could be small, tiny things. But the Lord uses us for His kingdom. Because if the Spirit of God is at work within us, the gates of hell cannot stand against us. Just as when Christ said, I have set to build this temple, don't you call it trivial, I am with you. Nothing was going to stop those people if they trusted the Lord and followed Him. And that promise is true today. The crisis says, I am with you. My presence is with you. Guys, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We have the power of God within us. Let's not ignore that. Let's not forsake the presence of God for so many years like these children of Israel did. But let us draw nigh to Him. And He promises, I will bless you. It may be winter, but spring is coming. And this whole life may be winter, but folks, spring is coming. One day we will be in glory, sinless, perfect. No more tears, no more sickness, no more pain. And we will see the fullness of His glory. We will experience the full presence of our God and our Savior. And we can't even imagine or fathom what it's going to be like. But it's going to be amazing. And let us... Hold to that. Let us be spurred by that. Let us seek His presence here and now. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You so, so much that You love us. We thank You that You loved us so much that You sent Your Son, Christ, to die, Father, so that we didn't have to. That You took our sin and You put it upon Your Son so that we might have life. And as You said, that we might have life abundant. Father, I pray that we wouldn't turn back, that we wouldn't make the same mistake that the Israelites made, that we wouldn't make the same mistake to, to ignore You, to turn from You, and to seek the futile, worthless things of this world. But they would, we would turn, and with all our might and with all our power, we would seek Your presence, and we would seek Your glory, because that is where we shall find true fulfillment, true joy, is within Your presence. There's nothing here left. Father, capture us. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would be alive, working powerfully in this body, that we might encourage and spur one another on. Lord, we love You, but we need You so desperately, for we are weak. I pray You would take our weakness, Lord, and that You would make us strong through Your power. Again, we love You, and we need You. We pray this in Your precious and Your magnificent name. Amen.